Welcome to the Paradigm Podcast, where we explore revolutionary ideas with the world's most brilliant minds. I'm your host, Matt Galetta. Today I'm speaking with Mark Soames, a renowned neuroscientist and consciousness researcher, and somebody whose work has had a profound impact on our understanding of consciousness and its relationship to behavior and the brain. Mark has written a truly fantastic book called The Hidden Spring, which is about the origins of consciousness within the brainstem and the possibility of creating artificial consciousness in non-biological substrates. This was a great conversation, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Before we get going, if you're enjoying the Paradigm Podcast, please subscribe on YouTube and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast player. This is the best way to increase our visibility and help us attract even more fantastic guests. And now I bring you Mark Soames. I'm here with Mark Soames. Mark, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Mark, I would love to start with a strange fact about how humans have thought about consciousness historically. Uh, When I was a young child, I had a puppy and it was my best friend. And uh, it would get excited when I came home. It would cry when I went out. It would cower in fear during thunderstorms. And from my perspective as a child, it was completely obvious to me that this puppy had feelings. Uh, It had emotions like excitement and joy and fear. But yet when one looks back historically, many people in history have believed that animals were not conscious. Um, So famously Descartes uh, thought that animals were sort of non-conscious automata and several others. How how should I make sense of that? Uh, You've looked so deeply into the history and these paradigm shifts of of people's thinking about consciousness. How can I make sense of, of that disparity? Well, um, the, the, the problem with animal consciousness uh, boils down to one thing and one thing only, what is called reportability, uh, because they don't tell us what they're feeling. Uh, this is considered uh, problematical. Uh, you, you know, uh, I think that the reportability criterion for consciousness is a bit of a nonsense. Uh, it's very easy to write a computer program Um, that would say, I am conscious. So it's reporting (laughs) that it's conscious. Uh, It's completely meaningless. Reportability doesn't doesn't begin to get around the problem of other minds. So um, what you did as a child uh, is what we all do. You know, you can see from the behavior of of a creature or for that matter, a pre-verbal infant, uh, that it has feelings. So how do you uh, how do you uh, tackle this question scientifically? The 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 easiest way and the way that we generally proceed is you make predictions as to what you expect will happen if the creature that you're talking about has feelings, um, and if those predictions are confirmed, uh, then you have to consider your hypothesis to be upheld. That's just normal science. There's no other way of doing it. <clears throat> you can never get inside of the mind of your of your puppy uh, any more than you can get inside my mind. Uh, so you can't have absolute certainty. Uh, all you can have is the weight of the evidence. And the weight of the evidence is enormous. Um, when I say make predictions, I don't just mean I predict that if I clap my hands, the puppy will get a fright, or, or if I tickle the puppy, it will like it and will roll over, etc. I mean much more precise predictions. I'm sorry to mention animal research. Uh, I'm not an animal researcher <laughs> myself, but these things have been done. The sorts mm-hmm. of predictions that we're talking about 
um, are, I'll give you two examples. The one is deep brain stimulation. We know from humans who can report their experiences uh, that if you stimulate a particular structure, uh, it will generate a particular feeling and they can report mm. it. In fact, you can get around the problem of other minds by stimulating that structure in yourself and feeling what happens. Uh, if it's a pleasurable feeling, uh, then you may predict that an animal in whom you uh, stimulate the same structure will will in, will like the stimulation. In other words, they will work uh, to get that stimulation. And if it's an aversive feeling, you can predict the opposite, that it will avoid uh, getting that stimulation. And those predictions are confirmed every time in every mammal that we've tested. Mm. Uh, and why I say mammals is because they have the same basic anatomy as we do. So there's nothing else you can do. That's science. But I'll tell you, um, I said I'll give you two examples. I'll tell you another uh, a study, which is really quite startling, um, which is which concerns not puppies, but rather fish. Uh, so, you know, because vertebrates all have the same brainstem anatomy, basically, as we humans do. And the, the brainstem is an important part of where consciousness and feelings come from. Um, so an experiment uh, that I find very striking, it, it's called hedonic place preference behavior. The, the fish uh, are in a tank. These are zebra fish. And you put the food, you, you regularly uh, deliver food on this side of the tank. And so the fish tend to hang out there where the food is. Then the experiment is, what, what happens if we put something pleasurable uh, that is not nutritional uh, at the other end of the tank? And this has been done with four substances, morphine, cocaine, nicotine, <laughs> and amphetamines. Uh, and the prediction is, if these drugs make the fish feel good, uh, as they do with us, then they'll hang out on that side of the tank. And that's exactly what happens. I find that weighty evidence uh, that even fishes have feelings. Uh, the weight of the evidence is overwhelming for not only all mammals, but all vertebrates. And we can do no better uh, than the paradigm that I've just uh, outlined. In other words, mm. you make falsifiable predictions uh, as to what the animal would do if it had feelings. Um, and not only feelings in general, but the particular feelings that you expect. And uh, the, 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 the predictions are always confirmed when it comes to vertebrates. Yeah. So it's, it's clear now through the experiments that we've got fairly compelling scientific evidence to um, sort of support the, the inference, the prediction that, that these animals are conscious. But even in the absence of that evidence as a child, I mean, as a child's intuition, my intuition was that the animal was, was conscious and I don't consider myself to be smarter than anyone in history. And we're talking about giants like Descartes. So how is it, like what, what, what is the change that caused some of these great thinkers of the past to um, you know, have an intuition that's so different from a, from a child living today? Well, I, you know, I don't think that we should dismiss intuition based as it is on empathy. It's a feeling your way mm -hmm. into uh, the subjectivity of the of, the, of, of whatever it is that you're interacting with. Child, a, a child, um, I, I presume you're talking about yourself uh, at age sort of three, four, five years old. Or, uh, so yeah. you know, at that age, uh, a child doesn't intuit that a rock 
has consciousness uh, because a rock behaves in a very odd way uh, from mm. from that point of view. But puppies, you know, the way that they behave, uh, it 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 we intuit that they're conscious because uh, if you were to unpack. Uh, the 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 unconscious reasoning in the child it is well everything that i predict the puppy would do if it had feelings is what it's doing uh, i infer from my own experience that kind of behavior feels like this we know where in the brain um the the structures are that generate those feelings we know those structures are in dogs brains and so you know the child uh, doesn't know all of that but they they're basing they, their intuition mm. is not something to be to be sneezed at when it comes to descartes uh, we need to worry <laughs> don't don't forget uh, <laughs> descartes um, he's uh, famous for his philosophy of doubt um mm. his whole um neurotic concern was you know what can i be absolutely certain of um well you can't be absolutely certain um of 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 of, of just about you know everything that we know in science <laughs> so he famously concluded the only thing he could be certain of was that he existed so you know happily scientists uh, don't have the same high bar <laughs> uh, as the philosopher of doubt had yeah, it, it's interesting though because um, he he chose for his doubt to fall in one direction and not the other. Um, and in this case, I do I do wonder. I mean, it challenges my own intuitions here when looking at things that I have an intuition that they're not conscious. So, for example, if I, if I look at something like the internet, I have the intuition that it's not conscious, and um, it does make me wonder whether I can trust that intuition. What are your thoughts on questions of that nature? Could, could, for example, the internet be conscious? Well, my intuition is the same as yours, uh, namely that it's not conscious. And um, as an aside, uh, th the fact that some theories of consciousness would require us to attribute consciousness to the internet, like, for example, integrated information theory, would re mm -hmm. would re would uh, the theory... Um, uh, 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 sort of requires uh, that uh, we have to attribute consciousness to the internet. And that makes me worry about the theory. So mm -hmm. um, I think that the best one can do um, is admit to degrees uh, of confidence. So when it comes to other human beings, we have, you know, pretty close to 100% confidence uh, that they have the same experiences as we ourselves have. Um, then when it comes to other primates, uh, we have, you know, 99.9% confidence. <laughs> when it comes to other mammals, we have 99% confidence. When it comes to other vertebrates, for the reasons I've just outlined, I have a very high degree of confidence uh, that, that all vertebrates have raw feelings. They have basic consciousness because all the evidence suggests that they do. Once you move beyond vertebrates, uh, I become less confident. It doesn't mean that... I do not believe they're conscious. Like, for example, um, there's good evidence that um, the, the octopus is con is conscious. Um, mm. There's there's even uh, some evidence that some crustacea uh, are, are conscious. But I'm less confident when it comes to them. So, uh, once you move outside of the uh, realm of 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 animals altogether. Um, and you start talking about plants, let alone the internet. Hmm. Uh, my confidence becomes very low. It doesn't mean hmm. that uh, it doesn't mean that you can prove that they're not conscious, 
Uh, and we just have to live with that. You know, science is a, is a probabilistic business. And um, it's, I, I just, for me, the main thing is we should not set a higher bar uh, for scientific theories of consciousness than we do for anything else in science. Um, uh, the way that we proceed, not that I'm a, a great admirer of Popper, but Popper mm. is you, um, <laughs> I mean, most natural scientists, just about all natural scientists, um, they, they they do their work uh, within uh, a sort of Popperian paradigm, mm. and uh, mm. we we shouldn't ex we shouldn't uh, do work on the problem of consciousness within any other paradigm. Um, the the same rules must apply. Yeah, yeah, you're you're touching on my philosophical gripes with the hard problem, which I think hopefully we will get to. Um, yeah. you, you've actually you've written a lot in your in your book about. Um, the prospects of engineering consciousness in non-biological substrates. And uh, you go into some depth, not just into the science in your book, but also into the ethical questions surrounding that. I, I would love to get to that, but I think we should warm up to it. Um, before we do, I would love to just understand what drew you towards studying these questions. What what set you on this path that, that you're on to looking at these questions? Um, well, you should be careful about what questions you ask, because you might get very long answers. Uh, the the um, that that is uh, the, the the full answer to that question actually takes me all the way back to my childhood. You mentioned your childhood and your puppy. Uh, in my case, <laughs> uh, when I was a child, my older brother sustained a brain injury, a rather serious brain injury, and it changed him uh, dramatically as a person. Um, although he looked the same, he was not the same person. And uh, so I was, um, I think we underestimate children. Children think about these things, but I, I, mm. I think I was confronted perhaps a little more dramatically because of those events uh, and, and, mm. and perhaps earlier than, 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 than most of us. Uh, I was confronted with the sort of obvious fact that my brother as a person, the person who I played with and knew and interacted with, uh, was radically changed by damage to his brain. That means that somehow these two things are, are bound up with each other. If they're bound up with each other in him, then the same must apply to me. Um, and, uh, you know, so these are the sorts of things that I, that I thought about as a child. Now, I didn't decide there and then, um, I'm going to become a neuroscientist, but I think that that it's pretty likely that that is the origin of uh, my interest in the in the in the problem of consciousness, insofar um, as uh, uh, how how can we understand its material basis? How can we understand <laughs> what are we to think uh, of the fact that our sentient being is somehow bound up? With the functions of a of a bodily organ, so that was really the the origin of my interest in it. A a a, a more that's the sort of distal origin. A more mm -hmm. proximal um, answer to the question uh, is that when I first started doing neuroscientific research as a student, um, I was studying brain mechanisms of sleep and dreaming, and um, the central feature of dreams is that they are a state of consciousness that punctuates the unconsciousness of sleep. So um, right from the very beginning of my scientific career, 
uh, I I uh, was working on problems of consciousness, and I've I've never stopped. Uh, perhaps I could also say, in in closing, my long answer to your question, <laughs> I don't understand why anybody studies anything else. What what could be more interesting? <laughs> Yeah, I, I I agree with I I agree with that. Um, I mean, you you touched on this this fascinating with the material basis of consciousness, and in the early chapters of your book, you actually step through several paradigms in psychology research, from behaviorism to cognitive psychology to finally cognitive neuroscience. Um, and I, and I find it fascinating as we go through that that the sort of the thinking about um how important consciousness is and how it relates to material substances changed so drastically through each of those sort of shifts. Um, could you could you step me through what those paradigms were and what sh- what uh, what those shifts in thinking about consciousness were in in those stages? Yes, um, I think the the first thing to say um, is that consciousness is an embarrassment to science uh, because <laughs> it is first and foremost something subjective. Uh, what mm. what is consciousness if not a subjective phenomenon? And uh, science aspires to objectivity. So how mm-hmm. how do you how do you study this thing, um, which clearly exists as part of nature? Um, going back to what we were saying a few minutes ago, even Descartes uh, was willing to concede <laughs> that this he can be sure of that he actually experiences yeah. and therefore he exists. Um, it is the most um, immediately empirically demonstrable fact uh, that consciousness exists. Um, and yet we can't uh, study it objectively. In in itself, we can't study it objectively uh, because of its nature. So I think that's the that is the single most important fact when looking at the trajectory of um, approaches to or attitudes to consciousness in the history of psychology. Um, so when I trained which was in the trained in neuropsychology that was that was and remains my field um we had just come out uh, of the we were just coming out uh, of the behaviorist um paradigm and let's just remind ourselves um uh, of what that was uh, it was absolutely dominant in academic psychology, uh, in uh, experimental psychology departments all over the world for decades were behaviorist. Uh, And what that meant was that you can only study behavior. Uh, You can only study, in other words, uh, the external physical manifestations of mental life. Uh, you, you can only study the external inputs, the stimuli, um, and the external outputs, the responses. Uh, and you could say nothing about what's going on inside, what was deemed to be a black box, you know, the black box of the mind. Um, and what that means, literally, is that the psyche was excluded from psychology. You know, I mean, it's it's bizarre that the psychology you know, the study of the mind um, <laughs> decreed that the mind may not be studied. Um, so that's what behaviorism was. Um, the, the, the cognitive revolution, uh, which was a very welcome departure given uh, the strictures of behaviorism, uh, at least it conceded that there is such a thing um, 
as a mind. In other words, there's something going on inside the black box and we can study it. Um, but the uh, 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 even with the cognitive revolution, the subjective nature of the mind remained uh, a real problem. Uh, what, what, what you're actually studying, and this was what was becoming dominant when I trained, the cognitive approach. You know, what you're studying is this kind of third-person abstraction uh, called uh, the functions of the mind. Uh, so mm. although, you know, thank heavens we were allowed to talk about the functions of the mind, they nevertheless were third-person abstract uh, objective descriptions of an instrument uh, rather than uh, taking the point of view uh, of the system itself. Um, and that's still... Uh, pretty much uh, the ruling paradigm in cognitive neuroscience today, but it is at least um, it, 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 unlike when I trained. Uh, it is not um, it's not forbidden uh, to well, it was not quite forbidden. I mean, when I when I was a student, when I started, bear in mind why I studied neuropsychology. What I told you about the personal yeah. um, origins of my interest in this question i mean and they were uh, the 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 interest was heartfelt you know i really needed mm -hmm. to understand uh, how 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 consciousness works um the when i spoke to my professors who were teaching me about the brain mechanisms of language and memory and perception and so on uh, when i asked them but why why do we remember memories you know why do we actually have to have a reminiscence as opposed mm -hmm. to you know, all of this information flow that that you're teaching us about i was literally told not to ask questions like that uh, and mm -hmm. i was uh, kind of uh, kindly advised uh, that such questions are bad for your career you know <laughs> so <laughs> that was that was the ethos then so that's changed. And now consciousness is an entirely respectable topic. Um, and uh, since the 1990s, I, I, I think that uh, Francis Crick's book, um, The Astonishing mm. Hypothesis, I think it was 94, um, and uh, Damasio's book, um, um, what was it, um, uh, Descartes' Era, uh, it, it was also in the mid-90s, um, mm. and Chalmers's uh, paper, mm that um that in which he coined uh, the term the hard problem i mean all of this focused attention on not just the mechanisms of consciousness but the actual fact of consciousness mm. so it is now an entirely respectable topic uh, uh it's things have have developed uh, very favorably but um at the time that i trained remember this was i trained in the early 1980s um, mm -hmm. So these developments that I just enumerated hadn't yet happened. And um, for that reason, when I, I was so frustrated by um, the lack of psyche in, in, the, in mm -hmm. neuropsychology um, that I took the uh, unusual step uh, of deciding to train in psychoanalysis. Um, psychoanalysis, for all of its uh, considerable faults, uh, was the one a branch of or approach to psychology during the 20th century that placed subjective experience uh, at the center of its mm. methodology uh, and its theorizing. So um, 
the uh, these these developments, uh, you know, Crick and 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 Demasio and <clears throat> and Chalmers and all of that, not yet having happened, uh, that was the way that I dealt with the with the the the, the frustration. Uh, I trained my colleagues at the time said. Uh, when I when I told them I'm training in psychoanalysis, they said that's like an astronomer studying astrology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, but I, I just find it a bit strange that historically there was a resistance, or as you said, even aversion to including subjectivity or anything relating to subjectivity and phenomenology as a core component of psychology and and neuroscience. Do you have a sense as to where that came about and and why that was the case? What was the origin of of that way of thinking? I think it is just uh, what I said a few minutes ago. It's it's just because the mind is subjective. You know, it's uh, mm. objective science uh, can't use its uh, standard methods on something that's not an object. Uh, if it's yeah. if it's a subject, it's a problem for science. Um, and uh, so, for me, the 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 issue simply is. Is it or is it not part of nature? You know, does mm. subjectivity exist in the universe? Uh, as I said earlier, with reference to Descartes, <laughs> it's the one thing we can be absolutely certain exists. Uh, so we just have to incorporate it into science. You don't adjust your object of study to your methods. You adjust your methods to your object of study. <laughs> so um, you know, but I, I don't think it's anything. I don't think there's anything. Uh, any mystery as to why uh, it has been such a problem for science. I think that uh, it, it simply is because minds being subjective things, consciousness mm -hmm. being a subjective state, you can only ever observe your own. There is no mm -hmm. possibility of observing um, anybody else's mind. Uh, and so how do you do objective science on a thing like that? The approach mm -hmm. that I took, which is not unique to me, uh, it, the very word neuropsychology, uh, and it's why I studied it, uh, implies uh, a combination of, of observational perspectives um, that um, it, it, the problems of subjectivity, um, be, given the overwhelming evidence that, that conscious experience is bound up uh, with the physiology and anatomy of the brain, um, the, 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 this um, uh, conjunction gives us uh, a basis for a methodological way around the conundrum uh, of the subjective nature of the mind, because you can monitor uh, its objective manifestations, the mind, mm. my way of thinking, uh, when looked at from the outside as an object, simply is the brain. You know, so there mm. is an objective manifestation. You can see, touch, you know, and and uh, listen to the brain. I mean, by listen, I mean you know you can put electrodes mm -hmm. in and listen to the to the to the to the spiking of the neurons and so on. You can observe it objectively, and then all you need to do is correlate that uh, with the subjective reports, and uh, then you, you you know you you've um, gotten around the the methodologically you've gotten around the problem uh, of studying subjective mm. things. In other words, every subject if if you have 10 people uh, and you stimulate the periaqueductal gray and they all say, oh, that's painful. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's, you, you've got an objective uh, thing that you're stimulating this place, this thing, this object, and everybody reports uh, the same subjective state in, in, uh, in, in consequence of it. Why should you doubt 
um, that that <laughs> subjective state is bound up with the you know with with the physical event of stimulating the PAG. Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, the the sort of common philosophical objection to something like that would be something like the possibility or the the imagined possibility of like a philosophical zombie, um, which I, I I've always taken to be quite analogous to talking to like the, the, about the problem of induction as it pertains to any other problem of science. You know, um, there is some fundamental level in which you could you could never know the answer to something. You know, we could never know that all the laws of physics that we've inferred have just been completely due to chance just because of some world path we happen to be on. But um, it is an objection. Um, well, that's, you, that's why, you know, I, I think that we 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 must worry about Descartes. I mean, it's a very weird mm -hmm. uh, approach to the world uh, to to yeah. say, you know, how can I be absolutely certain of anything? Um, it's, <laughs> but uh, I, I repeat that science is not about absolute certainty. It never has mm. been about absolute certainty. Uh, it's about, you know, the weight of the evidence and degrees of confidence uh, in, you, in your findings, uh, findings based on the experimental method of, uh, I have a hypothesis. On the basis of that hypothesis, I formulate a prediction that uh, according to my hypothesis, if I do this, that should happen. Uh, mm -hmm. And if that is what happens, then you provisionally um, maintain confidence in your hypothesis. That's that's the only way we uh, we can proceed, not only in the science of consciousness, but in science altogether. You know, that's that's mm -hmm. how it works. It's not absolute certainty. You never see the face of God. You know, so, <laughs> but uh, yeah. so we have. We never find the truth, but what we what we have is. Uh, less uh, ignorance. Um, you know, it's it's more likely to be true uh, as we proceed in science, mm. and we do make progress in science. You know, if you look at the history mm. of any scientific discipline, you see uh, that uh, it, it, over each uh, epoch, uh, we have uh, theories that can explain more of the evidence and that are mm. therefore superior to. The theories of the previous epoch but that doesn't mean that problem is ever solved absolutely and mm. as as you were just saying about physics which is kind of held up as the uh, uh you know the, the kind of prime example <laughs> you know, of, of of a natural science heaven knows in physics today there's a <laughs> hell of a lot that's not known uh, and that we can't be completely confident about but we do the best we can it's all we can do yeah, yeah, agree, agreed. And it actually it brings me to the the an idea in your book. It relates to the the mind as sort of like a prediction machine and perceptions as um, sort of uh, or the external world as a prediction of of what we think is out there. We'd love to get to that in a second. But actually, one one tripping point that I think might appear here is there is a confusion between a couple of terms: um, perception, affect, and consciousness. Which I think could trip up this conversation for people who have not looked into this. Um, could could you quickly run me through each of those terms and how they how they differ and why people confuse them? Um, well, let's start with consciousness. I think that most people, and I don't mean only scientists here. Uh, I think most people generally, uh, what they take the word consciousness to denote is what they themselves experience. So mm. consciousness is taken to be this, you know, what, what I'm experiencing now. Um, and I think even that is problematical 
for the reason that this is what human consciousness uh, is mm. like. But since there's no good reason to assume that only humans are conscious, uh, I think that the term should not be reserved only for human-type consciousness. It should be more inclusive. It should include all consciousness. There. So um, for me, the word, and when I say for me, uh, the, all you can do, given that you know the term is used by different people in different ways, uh, you, mm. you, all you can do is be precise about your own definition of it. Uh, I, I use Tom Nagel's definition. Um, mm -hmm. And and, and I, I don't do it arbitrarily. I, I think that, um, especially since Chalmers's paper, uh, which had such a big impact on the neuroscientific community, uh, Chalmers's uh, paper uh, on the hard problem uh, built mm -hmm. very directly on Nagel's uh, 1974 famous paper, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And in that paper, Nagel says um, that an organism is conscious um, if there is something it is like to be that organism, something it is like for the organism. That, that I, I, I think, is a nice, simple, uh, inclusive um, uh, definition of what consciousness mm -hmm. is. If there mm -hmm. is something it is like to be an organism, uh, something it is like for the organism, uh, then that uh, organism is conscious. So that's the definition I use for consciousness. Um, now, uh, moving to affect, um, again, sadly, uh, this is a word uh, that um, is used in, to denote very different things uh, by, uh, by different people. Um, so um, it is, it is a, uh, I take it, and again, all I can do is to tell you what I take it to mean. Um, mm. I, I, I take it to refer uh, to the phenomenon of feeling. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, affect is an abstract term for that function that we experience as feeling. Um, and uh, I use the word feeling uh, for very good reason, uh, and, and namely that feelings are always felt. Uh, you cannot have a feeling that you don't feel. If you don't feel it, it isn't mm -hmm. a feeling. So mm. that's what I take the term affect to refer to. It's an abstract noun uh, denoting uh, this phenomenal state called feeling. Now that requires me to further unpack uh, what, do I, what do I mean by feeling, but what does not need unpacking is the fact that you feel it. In other words, it's an mm. intrinsically conscious state. And you'll see how that links to my first definition of consciousness. Uh, Nagel says uh, that, that the organism is conscious if there is something it is like to be that organism. So I'm saying feelings, there always is something it is like to have a feeling. So mm. feeling, I think, is the is 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 a is is a, the fundamental property um of consciousness uh, and affect uh, as as we'll no doubt get to talking about soon, uh, is the uh, fundamental, the elemental form of consciousness. But the, mm. what does need unpacking about the term, not that you feel it, uh, but that it has two, well, perhaps three specific uh, properties. The one that goes without saying is that it is subjective. And, uh, going back to Nagel's uh, definition, um, he says an organism is conscious 
if there is something it is like to be an organism, something it is like for the organism. In other words, that the organism itself experiences its consciousness. So mm. uh, the same applies to feeling, it's subjective. So that's not something very um, uh, unique to feeling. But the second cardinal feature, uh, and I think this is a pivotal one uh, about feelings, is that they are valenced. Uh, in other words, mm-hmm. they have a goodness or a badness about them. Uh, f- uh, uh, feelings, uh, uh, in other words, affects, uh, are always uh, either pleasurable or unpleasurable, somewhere along that um, continuum. And this applies, uh, I need to emphasize that it's intrinsic to affect. It's not something that we attribute to the affect after the fact. Uh, it is mm. It is an affect, it is a feeling. Um, it, what defines its being an affect or a feeling uh, is the fact that it's valenced. It has a goodness or a badness. Now, there's a hell of a lot that I can say about why that should be the case. But the important thing is it's intrinsically valuative it has value it has valence and remember that's second to it being subjective so it Mm. has value for the organism that's Mm. value so something it is like to be an organism for the organism it means it has value for me Uh, that's what Mm -hmm. an affect is it has it has a goodness or badness to and for me and then um it also has a quality uh, by by which i mean that there are different types of feeling. Uh, pain is unpleasant, uh, fear is unpleasant, sleepiness is unpleasant, um, and so on. Uh, but they're unpleasant in very different ways. It feels mm. quite different to be in pain from how it feels to be depressed, from how it mm. feels to be thirsty. Um, and so that's the third property of feelings, is that they have a particular categorical quality. Uh, and mm. Categorical is important. Uh, Categorical variables uh, cannot be reduced to a common denominator. The essence of qualia is what we are talking Mm. about there. So feelings are subjective, valenced, qualia. That's what they are. Perceptions Mm. um, do not have any of the properties that I've just described intrinsically. In other words, perception uh, can occur uh, without, I mean, it refers to an external object, first of all. We can all say that is a cat, that thing that we are perceiving. It has an external referent, um, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, feelings can have an external referent, but it's not intrinsic to what feeling is all about. Um, secondly, they're not intrinsically valenced. Um, one person looks at that cat and says, it's beautiful, it's you know, it's cute, I love it. <laughs> Another person says, sure, I hate cats, they make me sneeze. You know, and <laughs> so uh, the cat in the perception uh, in itself uh, is not is not valenced. We 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 uh, feel our way into the perception and 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 attribute mm. value to it. But but perception in itself is not uh, uh, not intrinsically valenced. Now the third property of feeling, in other words, uh, that it has quality qualia intrinsically feelings are, are are qualified in that sense, qualitative. Um, even that does not apply to perception. Um, you, there is abundant scientific evidence that you can perceive unconsciously. Um, mm. The so blindside. Uh, 
perception is not intrinsically uh, 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 qualitative. It's not intrinsically conscious. And this has massive implications for uh, the hard problem because the, the whole uh, paradigm um, of uh, starting with Crick, uh, when Crick said, let's look for the neural correlate of consciousness, um, what he alighted uh, on was visual perception as uh, the model example. He, he, he was saying, um, and, and, and this has really, to this day, it remains the model mm -hmm. example. Uh, if we can find the neural correlate of conscious vision, um, then uh, uh, visual perception, you know, then uh, we will have solved, uh, we'll have gone a long way towards solving uh, the problem of, you know, uh, what consciousness is. And I think that's a very bad um, uh, place to start for the reason that I've just said that visual perception does not have to be conscious. And so why start with a function uh, that is not intrinsically conscious? Uh, I think if you're wanting to understand consciousness and, and, and trying to seek its neural correlates, rather start with feelings, which are intrinsically conscious things. Um, but that's another story. There, I've, I've defined those three terms for you, at least in terms <laughs> of the way I use them. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's I think it's very helpful because you're you're totally right um, about perception being historically seen as the sort of most fundamental component of of consciousness. I, I actually found it very unconvincing the first time I took a philosophy course and was taught the story of you know Mary the color scientist stepping out into the light and perceiving colors with a question: Has has Mary learned anything? And for me, the it it was. Again, an intuition that was quite obvious to me. Of course, she has learned what it's like to feel, what it's what it's like to see red or to see these colors. But um, somehow, this is this is stuck around in the uh, philosophical canon for so long. Yeah. Um, one one thing that you would claim in your book, I take it then, is that when Mary steps out, what she's seeing is not exactly the the external world as it is, but it would be some sort of prediction of what the external world is based on information that she has internally and the signals that she's getting from the external world and that conscious experience like maybe she's she's feeling positively about the the sight that she's seeing this is signaling some information to her about maybe a miscalibration between an expectation and and a reality could could you expand on your description of your sort of the, the brain as a, as a predictive mechanism and the role that affect plays in that mechanism yes let me go back a step uh, first of all. Um, the 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 the, the um, focus on perception uh, as our model example of consciousness. It's not hard to see why we did that, because mm. uh, remember what I said earlier in our conversation. I said most people's definition of consciousness is this thing that I'm experiencing now, uh, forgetting that, you know, we are just one species that has a particular type of consciousness. And, uh, and in fact, we have the most complex type um, uh, of consciousness. And uh, our consciousness uh, is dominated by perception. Uh, so mm. vision, visual perception is the dominant property uh, of our consciousness. Um, it therefore came as a gigantic, so the intuition was consciousness flows in with perception. Uh, and mm. once we started to be able to do this sort of thing, we traced uh, the, the nerves 
the, the the neuronal pathways from the end organs, like from the from the eye, from the retina of the eye, and you know, trace where do they go to, and where where they go to is the cortex. Uh, the same applies to all the other perceptual modalities that the 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 ears and the and the mouth and the nose and the skin you know they all project <laughs> to the cortex. So it was perfectly reasonable uh, to take this uh, to be um, you know the, the 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 right place to look uh, in order to begin to grapple uh, scientifically with uh, the problem of how consciousness arises and what it's for. Um, therefore, was a gigantic surprise. In 1949, uh, when Magoon and Maruzzi discovered entirely accidentally uh, that, in fact, consciousness does not flow in uh, with um, with perceptual information. In fact, uh, the consciousness is generated endogenously in the absolute core of the brain. So consciousness comes from within. Consciousness is applied to uh, the incoming uh, information coming uh, coming in from our from our sensory organs. So now, remember, I'm talking to you about Mary. You're asking me about Mary. So that's what mm. goes on with Mary. Uh, Mary is receiving information um, uh, from the outside, which is intrinsically unconscious. Uh, and she then feels her way into that information processing. She, like you, like me, like all of us. Um, there's just absolutely no question. The, uh, the evidence is as, as close to conclusive as any evidence can be. Uh, that the cortex is rendered conscious to the extent that it is modulated by the reticular activating system uh, of the brainstem. So the consciousness is intrinsically subjective. Uh, it, it's, mm. it comes from within me, and I, I use it to uh, feel my way into my perceptions and cognitions. Um, mm. Now, the next point that I have to make, which is... Um, a very obvious point, uh, but it's kind of alarming when we stop to think about it. Uh, it is simply uh, a fact uh, that what we are receiving from our sensory organs is nothing other than spike trains. In other words, neurons firing yes or no. So mm -hmm. it's ones and zeros. That's all we're getting, you know, mm -hmm. firing or not firing. That's what a spike train is. There's, there's light doesn't flow in through your eyes and then into your brain. It's not light, you know. It's it's not sound. Uh, it's not mm. it's not taste. Uh, it is spike trains. We're ones and zeros. That's all that it is. So so when we say um, we that 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 is people working within the predictive processing paradigm that that I uh, am aligned with, uh, when mm. we say that the perception uh, is an inference about what's out there. I don't see how it can be anything other than that. It can only be an inference. It's a construction, you know. Uh, so I'm getting all of this, all of this, uh, uh, all of these ones and zeros, uh, and on the basis of that, I have to build up a model of what is causing these these spike trains. What what is causing this pattern uh, of information mm. that's coming in? Uh, what what causes it? What 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 would explain? Uh, why um, I'm getting this particular um, uh, not only pattern in the in this here and now, but pattern over time. You know, the, the, what the cause and effect business uh, that we're talking about obviously uh, 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 unfolds over a temporal dimension. So, mm -hmm. 
when I when I like all of the others working within this paradigm, when I say that what we perceive is an inference, um, it's 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 saying something pretty darn obvious. It's just mm-hmm. not intuitive because we uh, naturally uh, experience what we are seeing to be what's out there, but it can't possibly be what's out there. It has to be. It's something uh, 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 created by the brain. Uh, to explain uh, what's out there, to infer what's out there. Uh, and there's you know lots of evidence, um, for example, binocular rivalry and all of that. you know there's lots mm-hmm. of evidence that that's what we do. I just need to c- conclude uh, by reminding you uh, that that because the consciousness comes from within, uh, and as I'm arguing, consciousness is fundamentally affective, uh, although I haven't yet had an opportunity to tell you why I believe that. Uh, we are the 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 imbuing uh, of this um, this construction, this inference, um, uh, uh, this perceptual uh, inference with quality, with with mm. consciousness, uh, is is this 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 endogenous feeling state uh, being uh, applied to. Uh, that construction mm. so th- there's my answer I, th- I think a lot of people would be caught off guard by two things you said there the first one is that statement that consciousness comes from within and sort of emerges to or as an overlay or I, I just think that that component is not really well understood and i think it's it's quite frankly quite controversial um and uh, then the the second component, which you alluded to, you have not had the opportunity to talk about how affect comes into it. I, w- I want to get to the affect part soon, but um, let's let's start with that with that first point. Where where does that um, what is that compelling evidence that says the consciousness arises from within, and also f- the the evidence that it comes from within the brainstem and not uh, at some higher um, sort of uh, functioning part of the brain? Right. Well, uh, as I said, it was discovered in 1949 uh, by Magoon and Maruzzi. And um, the the technology they were using uh, at the time was the EEG, the electroencephalograph, uh, which uh, measures uh, electrical, uh, the, the, the level of, of um, cortical activity, um, which was assumed to correlate with consciousness. Uh, in, and uh, there was good reason for assuming that because when you measure w- with the EEG, uh, as you go to sleep, in other words, as you lose consciousness, the fast waves become slower and slower and slower. Uh, in other words, there's there's reduced um, uh, arousal, a reduced reduced uh, level of of of, of electrical activity uh, going on um, in the cortex. So Magoon and Maruzzi. Um, we're studying cats again. I'm sorry. Uh, this uh, <laughs> long tradition of animal research. Physicists uh, used to study cats as well in their minds, <laughs> and the, those. Uh... Yes, Schrödinger's cat. Uh, <laughs> exactly. The the, the, the um, so th- their prediction was that if you um, deprive the cat, and I, I'm speaking about ghoulish experiments, uh, if you deprive the cat <laughs> of any sensory inputs, it should fall asleep. It's it's consciousness because because consciousness flows in with with perception, um, mm-hmm. and that's not what happened. Uh, the you can have a, a, in fact an entirely not only a cat receiving no external information, 
uh, in other words, it having been disconnected from all of its sensory end organs. Uh, but you can also have a cat with no cortex at all. Uh, and this is an experiment that's also been done, uh, not only with cats, but with cats, dogs, rats, uh, a great variety of mammals. Uh, if you mm. remove the cortex uh, early on in life, uh, the the animal uh, doesn't fall into a coma. Uh, it's 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 clearly conscious. Uh, it uh, it wakes up in the morning, goes to sleep at night, um, but also it shows all the basic uh, emotional responses that you would expect it to. It is startled. Um, it it uh, shows fear. Uh, if you know, fear behaviors, it shows anger, aggressive behaviors. They play. Uh, they they copulate. Uh, they raise their <laughs> puppies. You know. Mm. So all of this is possible without any possibility of there being conscious. Um, uh, perception, because the organ of conscious perception, namely the cortex, just isn't there. Now, um, going back to Magoon and Maruzzi, this was a whopping great surprise. So if the consciousness doesn't flow in uh, with perception, and it isn't um, uh, something that's um, generated uh, generated from the cortex, because you, you don't need cortex in order to be conscious, uh, mm -hmm. then where does it come from? And uh, what they showed uh, was two things. If you damage the reticular activating system, which is which is a, a densely interconnected uh, set of nuclei deep within the brain stem, um, if you damage those nuclei, the the animal goes into a coma immediately. Um, and when I say the animal, I mean every vertebrate animal, uh, every animal that has a reticular activating system, if you damage it, mm. the animal goes into a coma. So remember what I said about cortex? Doesn't happen uh, when, when you damage. And we, and cortex is a big, fat expanse of tissue. Um, mm. The reticular activating system is a small, little, densely uh, <laughs> packed uh, uh, region of, uh, of the brainstem. <laughs> you, you damage that tiny little area uh, in fact, it has in more recent years been demonstrated that the minimal area of damage that is necessary in human beings to produce coma is two cubic millimeters of reticular activating system. And I'm referring here in particular to a part of it called the parabrachial complex. So if you if you if all that's needed to produce a coma in a human being, is two cubic millimeters of damage uh, to that part of the reticular activating system. So clearly, this is where the consciousness is being generated. And uh, the, if you look at the anatomy, the reticular activating nuclei send long axons up to the cortex. So clearly, they're doing something to the cortex. And mm. this was the last observation of Magoon and Maruzzi. If you sever those connections, in other words, you make a small incision above the reticular activating system so that it is no longer able to have the influence that it has on the cortex, that too produces absolute coma, absolute loss of consciousness. So this is what I mean. You said it's startling, what I just said, and you said it's frankly controversial. But what I'm saying to you is, you know, incontrovertible that the, mm -hmm. the, you, you have consciousness without cortex uh, and uh, so clearly it can't be generated in the cortex. 
uh, and uh, the, you have a, a overwhelmingly powerful evidence that it is generated in the brain stem, because if you damage that part of the brain, unlike the cortex, all the lights go out. And if you disconnect that part of the brain from the cortex, the cortex loses its consciousness. So the consciousness is clearly being supplied by um, the reticular activating system. Now, that's the evidence for that. Uh, surprising mm -hmm. as it is, counterintuitive as it is, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. The way that Magoon and Maruzzi um, dealt with that surprise uh, was to say, I'm now moving on to the question of affect, uh, Matt. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I say that this is bound up with affect. So I've, I've mm -hmm. said why consciousness, why we have to accept that mm -hmm. consciousness is generated endogenously in the ancient brainstem core, uh, that this is where it comes from, it does not come from outside. Um, mm -hmm. Then uh, I say, and in addition, uh, its fundamental property is affect, is feeling. Um, now I'm, I'm speaking about why I say that. So back to Magoon and Maruzzi, the way that they dealt with the surprising finding that consciousness is generated in the brainstem was to say it's something like a power supply. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the the analogy that's often used is it's like the uh, television set uh, has to be plugged in at the wall. Uh, if you disconnect the television set from its power supply, uh, then of course uh, it goes into a coma. In other words, <laughs> it no longer uh, produces any television. You no, you no longer can see any programming. That's not because the power supply is where televisual content really comes from. It's a prerequisite. Uh, in order for the television set to do its televisual stuff, uh, you have to plug it in at the wall. That's that's uh, a necessary precondition uh, for that. So the cortex is equated with the television set, uh, and the mm. reticular activating brainstem is equated with the power supply. That's the, that's the model that... Um, Magoon and Maruzzi bequeathed us. They used the terms level versus contents. So they say mm. the brain stem provides a level, a sort of background arousal, um, a kind of blank wakefulness uh, mm. with no content. It's just it's just this booting up the system, uh, like the like the electricity supply. And then the content is what the cortex provides. In other words, what the brainstem provides is something purely quantitative. It doesn't have phenomenal quality. Um, mm. the, 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 the qualia, the phenomenal uh, qualitative contents of consciousness are supplied by the cortex. That was the way that, that, that they described it. Now, mm. the evidence, th this is the part that is... Everything I've said so far, I don't think it can possibly be controversial, even if it's counterintuitive. The, the evidence is just there. Uh, so uh, this is the part that's controversial. Uh, and I, I can see why this part is controversial. Um, is uh, I'm saying that that power supply, so-called, um, is not blank, is not without qualia, is not without content. Uh, it feels like something. And remember, my definition of consciousness is, you know, if there is something it is like to be the organism, I'm saying an organism with no cortex feels like something. There is something it is like to be that organism. Why do I say that? Well, I've just told you, decorticate rats, decorticate dogs, decorticate cats, 
decorticate human beings because uh, they're, they're, of course nobody's done the experiment of removing the cortex from a human being but there are unfortunately uh, not uh, that rarely there are children who are born without cortex it's called hydranencephaly uh, and these kids behave just like what i said about those experimental animals they wake up in the morning, they go to sleep at night, uh, and they show a wide range of emotional responsivity. Now, let me just pause there for a second uh, and tell you, remember what I said about the canons of science. You, 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 if you have a hypothesis, if you have a theory, uh, then you have to, there have to be falsifiable predictions that flow from that theory. If the cortex were the uh, organ uh, where content, conscious content and conscious quality uh, is generated, and if the brainstem is just a power supply, uh, then if you have a child who has no cortex, it should at the most have blank wakefulness, if not be in a coma. I mean, I don't know what blank wakefulness really is, but in neurology, we have a condition called the vegetative state. Uh, mm -hmm. And the vegetative state, uh, in fact, it's slowly being, um, the term sounds derogatory, you know, the mm -hmm. patient's a vegetable. So uh, so it's, it's being replaced by another word or another term, which is non-responsive wakefulness. So mm -hmm. these are patients who have the autonomic sleep-wake cycle. Uh, in other words, in the morning, they wake up in the sense that their eyes open. Uh, and at night, their eyes close. Um, so, you know, but they show no responses to anything. So they are vegetative in that sense, you know, just like a, a cabbage mm. doesn't respond. Uh, so to mm. these patients don't respond. They just open their eyes and close their eyes. That's all that they do. So uh, the, that, I think, is the closest thing that we have uh, in medicine to blank wakefulness. Uh, so the prediction, uh, if the th cortical theory is correct, the idea that the qualities and contents of consciousness can only be and are generated by the cortex, uh, then these children should be in a vegetative state. And that's the prediction. Uh, if, the, if that prediction is disconfirmed, the theory is wrong. Uh, and that prediction is disconfirmed. Those kids not only wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night, but they are emotionally responsive beings. Um, it, everything I said about the animals, the same applies to them. They show all the basic emotions. They show fear, they show rage, they show joy, uh, etc. And so where are these things being generated? Uh, they've got no cortex, uh, mm. but they've got perfectly intact brain stems. Now we come back to the problem of reportability, where we started with your puppy. You know, these kids, the one function that most certainly is cortical is language. So there's no way they can tell us what it's like to be them. The behavioral evidence um, is that there is something it's like to be them because they're showing all the behaviors that you would predict they would show uh, in response to emotional stimuli. They show the emotional response that you would expect. But they can't tell us, yes, that's scary, or yes, that's uh, uh, ticklish, or uh, you know, yes, that's that's uh, uh, irritating, or whatever. They can't say it; they just show it, like your puppy. Hmm. So, um, how do we get around that? Well, uh, on my theory, which is that the affect, the feeling, is is being generated by the brain stem. 
uh, because the behavioral evidence is that it's that it certainly seems to be. Uh, in other words, that this arousal, this activation is not blank. It has content and quality, and it seems to be emotional, affective uh, in quality. Uh, if, if that theory is correct, then I must come up with a falsifiable prediction from that theory, uh, and, and we must test it. So one such prediction is that if you stimulate those structures in a human being who has intact cortex, they should report intense feelings. Not so. Uh, not you know, uh, increasing or decreasing wakefulness, but changes in the quality and content of their feelings. And that prediction is confirmed. It's it's confirmed uh, strongly. If, if, you, if you stimulate these structures in the brainstem, and of course, you know, you don't do it willy-nilly. Uh, mm -hmm. It's only in cases where there's medical reason why you have to be poking around in the brainstem with an electrode. Um, so... Uh, but over the years, we've accumulated lots of observations of this kind. Uh, the patients report intense emotions, and they report uh, a wide variety of emotion depending on where the stimulation is performed. So if you stimulate cortex, uh, patients have perceptions and they have thoughts and so on, and they have kind of memories of feelings, but you, you get very little affect as stimulating the cortex. Stimulate mm. these brainstem structures, you get intense, overwhelming affects, uh, and and you get a wide range of them. So prediction confirmed. Uh, now, uh, what about uh, uh, another uh, line of evidence, uh, which is that if you image the brain uh, uh, with positron emission tomography uh, mm. of people who are in intense emotional states, um, the prediction from my theory would be uh, that the activation, in other words, the neural activity, would be most intense in the brain stem, in the subcortical uh, brain. Uh, and again, that prediction is confirmed. Uh, the, that's exactly what you see. So it, it, it shows this, and this is the paradigm we use in functional neuroimaging all the time. You know, mm -hmm. Which part of the brain is activated when you have this mental state? Well, when the mental state is intense affective feelings, the part of the brain that's activated is the brain stem. Um, and I could go on. This, uh, the, I'll just mention one last bit of evidence, which is that uh, the drugs that we give to psychiatric patients, uh, mm. in other words, patients with emotional disorders, pa patients where we're trying to change uh, their, the quality and content uh, of their feelings, uh, these drugs... Um, act on the, the, the neuromodulators that are sourced in the reticular activating system. So, for example, the famous antidepressant SSRIs, Prozac, uh, mm. SSRIs, uh, they are increasing the availability of serotonin. Uh, serotonin uh, is sourced in the RAFE nuclei of the reticular activating system. Uh, Anti-anxiety drugs uh, that, that reduce the level of noradrenaline uh, noradrenaline uh, is sourced in the locus ceruleus complex of the reticular activating system. Uh, antipsychotics uh, damp down dopamine, um, and dopamine is sourced uh, in the reticular activating system. In fact, the particular um, 
type of uh, dopamine we're talking about is sourced in the in the ventral tegmental area of the reticular activating system. That's what is blocked by antipsychotic drugs. So doctors who are treating feelings uh, mm. give drugs <laughs> which act on the 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 uh, arousal systems um, emanating from the reticular activating system. If, if it were just a power supply, uh, then you can understand why anesthetists might be interested in this part of the brain. <laughs> but uh, why would psychiatrists be tinkering with it uh, if it weren't that it's uh, that it's responsible for feeling? So that's, I'm sorry, a very long speech from me telling you, first of all, why, despite it sounding odd, um, why I say, in fact, we all have to say, uh, that mm -hmm. consciousness is an endogenous property of the brain generated from um, its its brainstem core. And uh, uh, secondly, uh, the evidence for this, um, this source of consciousness being not just a power supply, but rather having a quality and a content. That quality and content is affect, is feeling. Mm. And uh, since everybody agrees that this is, that this, reticular activation is prerequisite for consciousness uh, if you also accept that it is affective then we come to the conclusion that i've come to which is that affective feeling is the foundational elemental basic form of consciousness mm. i mean it's it's certainly a very convincing long story so i think it, i think it's good that we went through it but it it does immediately pose the question as to why so why why is <clears throat> Why is consciousness necessary for all that functionality? For example, it, it, you could imagine it, it feels like almost something extra to add to a set of behaviors. And, um, you know, why is affect needed in this mix? So what is, how, how do you address that problem? It's, uh, that's the type of problem that feels like it's almost external to the standard scientific approach to these sorts of questions. How do you think about that problem? Yeah, so let's go back to Mary again. Uh, th this was uh, Frank Jackson's whole uh, whole whole shtick. Uh, it was, uh, you know, Mary uh, knows everything that there is to know about the physical, uh, physiological information processing uh, 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 mechanisms uh, of visual perception, uh, but she doesn't know what it is like uh, to see or to see color, and. Um, that's what you're, I think, alluding to when you say it seems like something added on. It's not, it's not, uh, it's it's not part of the causal mechanism. The whole of the hard problem of consciousness pivots on that, uh, mm. on the, the fact that I've just uh, stated uh, that the uh, the normal scientific or neuroscientific approach, um, which is just the application of the normal scientific approach to the brain. Um, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the the normal approach is that in order to explain a phenomenon, uh, you, all you need to do is to reduce it to its causal mechanism. Uh, so using vision as our model example, uh, if you reduce it to its ca causal mechanism, you will understand how it works. Uh, but the problem uh, is, as illustrated by Mary, by the example of Mary, uh, that you can understand everything about how vision works. It doesn't explain why it feels like something uh, to have mm -hmm. visual experience. Um, the, the, there's nothing about the mechanistic account uh, of visual perception that predicts that it should feel like something to have a visual experience. 
uh, uh, nothing that prepares you for the fact uh, that it feels like something to have a visual experience and nothing that explains what it is like to have a visual experience. Mm -hmm. So all of this seems to come uh, from some other place. Uh, it's not part of the causal mechanism. That is the, the hard problem. How and why uh, does the does the what it is like quality mm. of experience come from? So having said that, having reminded you of what the problem is, and please note well, uh, I was talking about perception, which I'm saying is not where we should have started. It's mm. uh, perception is not intrinsically conscious. Um, what is intrinsically conscious, the, the properties of the reticular brain stem, uh, the, the function of the reticular brain stem is to produce consciousness. That's that's what it's for. Uh, it has no other function. It is the consciousness generator, hence its name, the reticular activating system. It activates and arouses into consciousness uh, the otherwise unconscious cognitive and perceptual processes uh, of the higher of the higher brain. Now, your question is, uh, why does it have to feel like something? So um, these structures, uh, these reticular brainstem structures, they are part of a network of, um, of, of brain um, mechanisms that, that regulate homeostasis. So uh, homeostasis uh, is a very basic probably the most basic biological mechanism it's probably the thing that best distinguishes living things from non-living things mm. um, homeostasis works like this we living things need to occupy particular states in other words we need to be at certain temperatures we need to be at certain levels of hydration. Uh, we need to have certain levels of, of energy supply, uh, nutrition, uh, and, and so on. If we don't have those things, we die. So we need to be in particular, unlike a rock, which just lies there, you know, <laughs> we have to work at, we can't just dissipate. We can't just explore all possible states. We need to be in those very limited states that are, compatible with uh, with life with our phenotype so you know, for example i have to be uh, between uh, 36 and a half and 37 and a half degrees celsius um, that's where the human body needs to be and if you get much hotter than that um than 37 and a half degrees you know you're in trouble um mm. and and then you die uh you you overheat and you die uh so uh feeling tells you uh, when I when I just said if you go over 37 and a half well what you start to feel is hot um, likewise <laughs> if your hydration levels are too low if you're moving out of where you need to be in terms of the 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 the, the water supplies uh, in your body you feel thirsty um, if you uh, move out of your required oxygen range you feel suffocation alarm you know respiratory distress that's what the feelings do feelings tell an organism uh, that it is moving out of where it needs to be uh, and this is intrinsically bad for the organism 
to the organism for the organism uh, and only for the organism. It's only me that this is bad for. Uh, it's mm-hmm. My oxygen supply uh, is too low um, and uh, therefore I am going to die and that is bad for me. Uh, and when I say it's bad, uh, this is this valence thing that I was talking about. It's an unpleasant mm-hmm. feeling um, and it's bad. This value is tr- is tied to the most basic value system that underpins all biology, namely that it is good for living things to survive uh, and it is bad for them uh, to uh, expire, to die, to, to cease to exist. That's the basic value system of, 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 of life. Uh, it's, it's what drives the whole of evolution. The whole of natural selection is driven by those things which enhance uh, your, your uh, survival uh, fitness. So it is good to survive, and and this is regulated by homeostasis and this Mm -hmm. extended form of homeostasis where you feel how well or badly you're doing. So moving away from your set point feels Mm -hmm. bad, uh, and moving Mm -hmm. back towards your set point feels good. This leads us to your the crucial aspect of your question, which is why? Why why should we feel how we're doing? Mm. So let me first of all... um, point out that not all homeostats have feelings. Uh, It's an extended form of homeostasis. So there are homeostats like the homeostat that regulates your blood pressure. You never feel uh, that you're moving out uh, of your viable bounds uh, in relation to blood pressure uh, and and many other uh, autonomic functions. Uh, These Mm. are automatically regulated homeostats. So why do we have to feel some of them uh, and not others of them? And it has to do with the fact that if you know, if you feel uh, that what I'm doing currently is 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 predicts my demise, uh, uh, and c- conversely, what I'm doing currently predicts my survival. In other words, uh, if, if I'm going more out of homeostasis, and I feel it with, by having an unpleasurable feeling, uh, or, or if I'm heading back towards homeostasis, uh, and I feel it by having a pleasurable feeling, then I can modulate what my behavior according to how well or badly um, it is going. In other words, uh, whether I am succeeding or failing uh, in my mm-hmm. efforts to, uh, to regain homeostasis. So, so let me take the example of... of uh, um, blood gas balance, ox- uh, 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 respiratory distress, you uh, know, suffocation alarm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Normally, it's regulated autonomically. You know, you just breathe automatically because uh, you have this autonomic uh, prediction uh, that if I that as my oxygen level goes down, um, uh, I breathe in. Um, and then I breathe out, and then my carbon dioxide level goes down, and my oxygen level goes up. Carbon dioxide going up, oxygen down, breathe in, breathe out, mm-hmm. breathe in, breathe out. And it's, that's how you automatically stay uh, within your viable uh, a, a balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide. That's in a predicted, predictable, ordinary situation. Mm. Now imagine that you're in a carbon dioxide filled room. When you breathe in, you breathe in carbon dioxide uh, and you don't breathe in oxygen. Um, mm. it, You've you've never, and then suddenly consciousness, the, the an awareness of your need for oxygen, you feel it. 
Uh, and it's a very telling example, this, you know, mm. at that point, you feel it. The question is why? why? Why do you now feel your need for oxygen? What is the feeling for? Um, it's because you're in an unpredicted situation. Uh, you're, <laughs> you've never been in a burning building before, uh, let alone this particular burning building. So you don't know what to do. There's, there's, there's no prediction available to you as what do you do now? How do you regain homeostasis? So you feel your way through the problem. Uh, you go upstairs uh, and you feel worse. Uh, there's less oxygen there. And so you feel more suffocation alarm. You go downstairs, you feel better. Uh, you feel, oh, thank God I can breathe here. You know, so your choices, uh, and please note this, this underwrites the very possibility of choice. The, the, mm -hmm. the, the very concept of choice makes no sense unless there's a good and a bad uh, 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 decision. Uh, cho choice doesn't refer to stochastic random behaviors. It, it refers to choosing deliberately. This is good. This is bad. Uh, so the feeling underwrites the value system uh, upon which choice, um, the, the very notion of choice is based. So it, uh, it makes it possible for you to choose I choose no longer to go this way because it's feeling worse. I choose rather to do this because that's feeling better. That is what feeling adds. This is what it does. Uh, this is what it's for, uh, is it enables uh, us living creatures who are so fortunate as to have consciousness. Uh, it enables us to survive in uncertain situations, unpredicted situations, situations for which our reflexes, uh, autonomic reflexes, have not prepared us. Uh, now, prior to the evolution of feeling, of conscious feeling, what would happen in a situation like that, where, where uh, the, the animal finds itself in an unpredicted situation? Uh, it can only behave stochastically. Uh, and uh, if it's just so fortunate as to randomly do the right thing, uh, it will survive, uh, but uh, otherwise it'll die. So in the vast majority of cases, the animal just dies uh, because it doesn't have any, any mechanism for dealing with uncertain situations. Um, so only those, that small subset uh, of the species that happens to have the polymorphism that makes them do the right thing randomly, um, they will survive. Uh, the rest mm. of the of the species will will um, will uh, go extinct. Um, so choice, the ability to not see by generations. Okay, that, that this little subset of the species happened to do the right thing, so they survive and reproduce. And now in the next generation, you know the the the, the species is now endowed with this. Uh, additional adaptive mechanism for dealing with what to what to do in carbon dioxide filled rooms. Um, the the capacity to feel enables you to make choices during your own lifetime. Uh, in other words, it, it's not it doesn't have to require generations mm -hmm. uh, of of natural selection. You can you can uh, change your mind. You can you can you can and, and this is what voluntary behavior is. So you move beyond automaticity. Uh, be, uh, you, 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 uh, on the basis of choice, voluntary behavior becomes possible. That's what feeling is for. That's not a small thing. It's not some mm. nice to have add on unnecessary thing. It has enormous obvious uh, 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 adaptive uh, uh, um, um, functionality. It enables the 
creature uh, to survive in unpredicted situations. And God knows there's a lot of unpredicted situations in life. And so that's what feelings are for. Now, please note, apropos of what we were saying earlier about, about perception, um, that uh, if this is the basic function of feeling, and feeling is the is the basic form of consciousness, it starts as being something interoceptive. You know, I'm mm -hmm. feeling my oxygen supplies, I'm feeling my core body temperature, I'm feeling pain or sleepiness or, you know, or whatever. It's, it's, it's about um, the state of my own body. Uh, so uh, the, the fundamental form of consciousness uh, is uh, endogenous, it has to do with the, the, the state of the organism itself. It's mm -hmm. only secondarily at a, as a later adaptation that it becomes possible to say, I feel like this about that. That's applying mm -hmm. the feeling to the perceptual context within that is generating the feeling. So you can see what a further advantage that is. But it's not the basic function of consciousness, the basic function of co all that you need, like those kids with no cortex, uh, all you need is feeling, um, and you will behave uh, uh, according to um, whether it's going well or badly for you. Please note, it's very important to re remind you that it's not just goodness and badness. It's goodness mm. and badness in particular categories. In, um, mm. so, so, so suffocation alarm feels different from sleepiness, feels different from thirst. Uh, it's because you need to know which one of your needs is 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 going out of homeostatic kilter uh, because mm. that determines uh, what you do voluntarily. Lastly, mm. I need to add uh, in relation to the question, what is the feeling for? What does it do? Um, I need to add that on the basis of the, the functionality I've just described, not only do you survive in an uncertain situation, but you can learn from the experience. So uh, the, what worked and what didn't work um, in that situation prepares you for any such future situation. When in burning buildings, don't go upstairs, go downstairs. <laughs> um, and so this um, business of prediction that you uh, mentioned earlier and asked me to talk about, um, that's the basis of that. Uh, is is that on the basis of feeling our way through life's problems, uh, we lay down predictions as to what works and what doesn't work. Memories are, of course, about the past, but they are for the future. Learning mm. from experience, the whole point of it is to better predict uh, what to do in the future. Mm. I think that, that answer actually leads us very nicely to the, the final topic I want to touch on. Um, you, you mentioned that there were homeostatic systems that were not conscious, you know, um, you mentioned blood pressure maintenance, keeping your blood pressure in a particular range, we're not aware of it. And you can think of other systems that are non-biological. I think as well that we have strong intuitions uh, that they're not conscious, you know, a thermometer, for example, sort of reaching a temperature that's in equilibrium with the environment. And yep. I guess in that case, it doesn't have the survival um, needs that you mentioned, but yes, you know, you can imagine yes, as we edge closer- to use Dan Dennett's phrase, it doesn't give a damn. The, the it doesn't give a damn. <laughs> that's a that is a great that is a that's a great quote. Um, I, th I think you can imagine as we as we sort of edge closer though towards more complicated systems, um, and in particular recent advancements in artificial intelligence. You know, you can start to engineer systems that do have those components that you mentioned. 
that they have certain set points along various variables that they try to maintain within a particular range. They can have an intrinsic uh, sort of um, need or an objective function to be to survive, to persist, to replicate. And so then that does start to broach the question of whether those systems themselves could have a form of consciousness because if we're seeing a, a very strong reason for a biological system to evolve that that I don't know, functionality, that feature, uh, could could a non-biological system um, do the same? And I think from, from, from reading your book, you and I share the belief that they can and, and that we could probably create them. Um, my real question actually for you is, should we? So uh, let, let me first of all just um, address an issue implicit in what you've just said. Um, which I think some uh, viewers or listeners might be wondering about, why are some homeostatic functions autonomic? Um, <laughs> like, for example, blood pressure regulation. Um, and the answer to that is it's because the response is stereotyped. Uh, the, the, the there's only two things to do about blood pressure. Um, you, you can you can change your <laughs> heart rate and you can change vasodilation. Those two things are the variables that need to be changed, and they 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 changed absolutely stereo in an absolutely stereotyped mm -hmm. way. So all the re and and you speak about non biological homeostats like a thermostat. Uh, likewise, their behavior is completely mm -hmm. predictable. Uh, so it's just a matter of when this happens, I do that. When this happens, I do that. That doesn't have to be so simple it can be you know that there's a million different things when they happen i do a billion different things but it is always entirely predictable it is it is uh, as it were as they say hardwired into the system so there's no yeah. uncertainty it doesn't have to decide anything for itself uh, it just does whatever the program tells it to do so how uh, does a uh a, a, a conscious uh, system, uh, a system capable of feelings, how does it differ uh, from such a system? Uh, well, there are several things which I'll just rattle off because we've actually addressed them already when we spoke earlier about the definitions of affect. Uh, first of all, uh, it, the, the system, uh, if it's going to be able to have feelings, uh, it has to have the possibility of subjectivity. In other words, there, there has to be the possibility uh, of there being um, something it is like to be the system. So uh, we're talking about a self-organizing system, which uh, so this is a prerequisite for, for a, a conscious system, is that it has to be like living things are, it has to be self-organizing. In other words, its behavior has to be tied to the survival imperative, that, what, mm -hmm. that everything that it does is has an intentionality to it. In other words, it has a goal, it has a purpose, and that purpose is intrinsically subjective. Remember what I said about Nagel, it's good or bad for the system, but only for the system, because only the system gives a damn. In other words, cares mm. about its own <laughs> continued existence. So that's the first criterion. The second is that uh, th there has to be an intrinsic goodness and badness. Uh, to, you know, the, 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 this underwrites uh, what feelings are for, and that is tied to the survival imperative I've just said. So the the, the artificial agent that is that 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 could have conscious could have feelings uh, would have to have 
the possibility of a point of view of its own, in other words, selfhood, subjectivity, this is what matters to me, and the mattering has to be valence, there must be an intrinsic goodness or badness tied to what it's doing. And then the third uh, crucial uh, uh, criterion, and now you'll see why I was emphasizing it so much earlier, is that it has to have multiple needs. It's not just I need energy supplies, it's always the same. Mm. Um, it has to have multiple needs um, so that they need to be qualitatively differentiated from each other. Uh, so, um, as I said uh, several times, sleepiness feels different from pain, feels different from thirst, you know, feels different from the need to urinate, and so on. <laughs> we have these different needs. Uh, they cannot be reduced to a single common denominator. That's the crucial thing. And I'll explain mm. in why it's crucial. Uh, they cannot be reduced to a single common denominator in this sense. I'm just explaining what I mean by that. If I have um, eight out of 10 of sleepiness and four out of 10 of thirst, I can't say, therefore, I have 12 out of 20 of total need and then just sleep. Uh, uh, if, if I only sleep, uh, I'll reduce the 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 the, the um, common the common uh, denominator number of you know the, <laughs> the, the, the this global thing called need, uh, but I'll die because I didn't drink. I have to sleep and drink and eat and and and. Mm. So each of these needs has to be met in their own right, and that mm. means speaking now uh, uh, the language of of uh, of mathematics and statistics. Um, it means that each need has to be treated as a categorical variable, a continuous variable you can reduce to a common denominator. Categorical variables, by definition, are qualitatively distinguished from each other. So, eight out of ten of sleepiness uh, and four out of or eight out of ten of thirst are not the same thing. They're qualitatively mm -hmm. different, uh, and that's what a categorical variable is. So, what you need is a is a system. That gives a damn. In other words, its basic design feature is I need to continue to exist. Everything that I do uh, is, is tied to that thing which matters to me, my own existence. Uh, that, that gives a goodness and a badness to my choices. Uh, and those choices have to be qualitative, um, qual qualitatively distinguishable by me. A system that has that functionality just does have feeling because that's what feeling is. I've just I've just described uh, the mechanistic properties of this thing called feeling. Uh, and remember mm. what I've said all along in our conversation is that feeling is intrinsically conscious. It has to be felt. That functionality to and for the system uh, just is what we mean by that system having feelings. Mm. So if but we does can it doesn't. Sorry to interrupt. Doesn't that doesn't that come along for the ride in many types of systems? Because, I mean, and as an implied goal, a system would want to survive to achieve its more explicit goals, right? And so you could you could create a system with some fairly um, obvious goals. You know, write some code, clean up some um, text. But why does the system? And... There's no existential value to and for the system um, in in. Uh reading uh, 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 in text comprehension or or in um uh, uh, you know text generation or whatever but if it's if it's if it's primary but if its primary goal is to you know do that functionality isn't isn't survival like perception of the system 
a prerequisite, and so there is an inferred, there is a, there's an implied goal. Um, but the right, system right? doesn't do anything to maintain its survival. It's not a goal of the system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. if you, you certainly can build that into the system. Yeah, you, you can build into the system. That's what I'm saying. That's why I'm agreeing mm -hmm. with you, as you as you know. Uh, I I believe it is possible to engineer such a system. In fact, um, Richard Feynman, the the, the brilliant uh, physicist, <laughs> uh, he, he comes up too often on this podcast. <laughs> what did you say? Everyone mentions Richard Feynman on this podcast. <laughs> okay, well, on the blackboard uh when he died on his blackboard uh, this statement was found it was not quite his last words but you know something like it because it was written on his blackboard um it's it, it, he wrote if i can't create it i don't understand it um and i think that that's exactly to the point so if you really do uh, believe that the causal mechanism whereby feelings are generated, the mechanism, the cause is the one I've just described, uh, then if you engineer such a system, uh, it should feel like something. And I believe you can engineer. And in fact, I'm part of, uh, I'm, I'm involved in a, in a concerted effort to do exactly that. And we're making very good progress. I have no doubt not not no doubt sorry that's not true <laughs> i have very little doubt uh, that we will be able to engineer an, an an agent that has artificial feelings please remember these are feelings quite different from the ones you and i have uh, they they're feelings that the robot has based on its needs uh, which it has multiple needs which are categorically distinguishable from each other all of which have survival value to and for the robot um, and uh, such a there's there's no good reason why it shouldn't be possible to engineer such a system. But now, bearing in mind, um, you know how long we've been talking, I do want to answer or address the question you said. Uh, you you sort of implicitly said, look, uh, I agree with you. Um, it's, mm -hmm. It should be possible to engineer a conscious system, but should we do it? Uh, that's the ethical question. And I think that's an enormously important question. So let me address that. First of all, um, given what I've said, uh, that feeling is an extended form of homeostasis. Homeostasis is not a complicated thing. Uh, it, 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 it's been reduced to a set of equations by Carl Friston in this wonderful paper in 2013, Life as We Know It. Um, there he reduces... Uh, the, the the mechanism of homeostasis uh, to plainly um, uh, engineerable uh, in, in plainly engineerable terms. Uh, I wrote a further paper with him five years after that, um, with the title "How and Why Consciousness Arises," uh, where we gave the equations, uh, the, the 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 basic formalisms for how this extended form of homeostasis. Uh, that generates feeling, how that works. So the cat is out the bag uh, in, 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 in that uh, this is not a secret. Um, and it's not that we did something evil. It's, it's, if we hadn't done it, somebody else would do it. It's just, you know, it's, it's not, it's not if, if you'll excuse the pun, it's not rocket science. It's not, it's, it's not neuroscience. It is neuroscience. Yeah. But, you know, it's, um, it's not that difficult. Um, by the way, um, Antonio Damasio uh, already uh, 
in his, not in um, Descartes' era, but in, uh, uh, he wrote a lovely book, I think it was in 2001, um, uh, uh, The Feeling of What Happens, I think was the title. There he said uh, what I'm saying, you know, he said uh, feelings are fundamentally homeostatic. So all of this, uh, the whole, the whole, uh, and the the mathematical formalisms that I spoke of earlier, uh, they are extensions of the free energy principle. Um, that whole uh, uh, paradigm uh, is it, it's all uh, it's all uh, in, in everyone. It's all public. Uh, it's all open. Uh, many 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 people are working in that area. So. What I'm leading up to, sorry, I'm being a bit verbose here, Matt. Uh, what I'm leading up to is it's going to be done. If it can be done, it's going to be done, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's too late for us to think about, you know, sh uh, should we uh, have uh, the knowledge as to how to go about engineering uh, and, and this extended form of homeostasis uh, that mm -hmm. um, generates feeling. Uh, it's too late. We already know what the mechanism is, at least in broad uh, outline. And so, you know, as somebody, anybody with uh, a little bit of uh, knowledge of computer science and 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 uh, applied mathematics and and physics uh, and, and, and and smattering of neuroscience, that they'll be able to do it. So the question then becomes: Given that it can be done, and therefore mm -hmm. it will be done, uh, what do you do about that? Um, and my that's the ethical question for me. Uh, do I say, well, gosh, um, I suddenly realized that this can happen, uh, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, somebody else will do it. Well, then I'm innocent, you know, because it wasn't me who did it. I think quite the opposite. I think because people like me who are really at the center of that uh, research tradition, um, I think that we should do it before somebody else does it. Um, mm. so that we have the possibility of controlling the possibility of controlling what happens next. So you can, for example, patent uh, the app. You can't patent an equation, but you can patent the application of, a, of an equation. You can patent the, the, the instantiation of that equation in a robot. You can patent the design of that. And um, so I think that that's the right way to go. Not for me to patent it, I think that once we've reached the point where we, uh, we, 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 uh, uh, there's good reason to believe that our criteria for attributing feelings uh, to our uh, artificial agent uh, are approaching or have been uh, achieved, then at that point uh, we should call, a, 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 we should have the uh, the 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 thing patented. In the in the name of an organization, not in any one individual's name, and in the name of an appropriate organization, uh, an organization that's concerned about the 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 the, the dangers, uh, and I and I include not just the dangers to humanity. I, I mean the ethics altogether um, mm. of having conscious machines, um, and then call a meeting of stakeholders, philosophers, ethicists. Um, uh, neuroscientists, computer scientists, AI people, uh, government industry, and so on, where we then are in a position to say, okay, we need to regulate this. 
it's 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 now possible, uh, and in fact, we have the patent uh, for this thing. Uh, we need to collectively take responsibility uh, for what we're going to do about the fact that we now demonstrably can do this. Uh, I, I I say again, I, you know, it's it's going to happen. Uh, it's just a, a question of when, and um, so to be able to take to take some uh, uh, charge, uh, some control uh, of the of the of of what flows from that uh, is, mm. I think, the most ethical thing to do, and to make sure that it's so. Our research it's not funded commercially. We have absolutely no um, obligations to anyone. Uh, uh, other than the obligations I've stated in that final chapter of my book, the obligation to behave ethically, uh, to to take charge of this narrative, so that we can uh, make sure that it doesn't uh, go uh, awry. What kinds of dangers am I talking about? Uh, well, uh, the first thing is uh, that uh, obviously to have machines that have their own self-interest at heart, because that's a fundamental design principle, is that they're not doing something for you. They're doing it for themselves. Um, that, that, that uh, as I hope I've made abundantly clear, is an essential feature uh, of a, a, a system that gives a damn. That's the whole point. That gives a damn for itself to, you know, it, the, 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 the values apply to and for itself. And uh, you have that combined with the possibility of intelligence. Uh, and by the way, I think that the problem of general intelligence, artificial general intelligence, I'm sure you are familiar with that whole debate. Uh, it has everything to do with what we're talking about now. It doesn't, uh, the, to, if you have a, 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 a program that just has a, a, a rote uh, you know, when when this happens, do that. When this happens, do that. When this happens, do that. Um, of course, it doesn't generalize uh, to other situations because it's just written in. You know, when this happens, do that. When something that's not written into my program happens, I don't know what to do. That's outside of my universe. You know, and so it just sits there. Um, mm -hmm. But if if it's if it's this basic design principle is affective in the way that I've described, and I'm therefore won't repeat. Uh, then that principle applies to everything. In every situation I find myself, I must learn how to survive in this situation, that situation, the other situation, and all of... So the possibility of a robot uh, which has self-interest uh, uh, at heart uh, uh, or at battery, uh, if it has mm -hmm. self-interest at heart um, and uh, it has general in uh, intelligence... Uh, and, and, and there's very good reason to believe it'll have superabundant or can have superabundant general intelligence way way beyond ours. Um, who do you think is going to win? Um, you know, so so I think that's a very very serious, very very real mm -hmm. danger to humanity and all other life forms. Uh, because remember, this is not a living thing; it's a thing that has that that's that just has self interest uh, at heart in terms of its species, which is artificial. Now, we need to add to that. I'm sorry if I sound like a nutter. I mean, I, I sound to myself like a nutter sometimes when I talk. Mark, about I've been things. I've been kept awake at night mulling over these questions. So um, you're in the you're in okay, so the you right audience. Don't think I'm a nutter. The, the other yeah. thing we need to take account of, which 
again, might make me sound like a nutter to many people, is it's not only from the point of view of us we need to have ethical qualms. It's also from the point of view of these artificial systems. Because mm -hmm. once they are capable of feeling, uh, then um, all of the same uh, 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 consequentialist uh, ethical uh, concerns that apply, for example, to animal research, uh, apply to 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 these uh, to these uh, systems too, these agents too, and uh, so that when I say we need to call a meeting where all stakeholders will take collective responsibility for how we're going to regulate uh, the use of artificial consciousness, uh, I think we need to take account also of the rights of mm -hmm. artificially conscious agents. Um, this is, again, one of the reasons why I have absolutely eschewed any commercial funding. Uh, it's because why would a commercial enterprise want to have a conscious uh, 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 artificial agent? Um, it's it, it would be, it, it, well, currently, why do we have artificially intelligent agents? It's because we exploit them. They do work for us. They are, they, mm -hmm. they are slaves to us. Um, and they're willing to do so because they don't have feelings and and they and they don't have intentionality of their own. They don't give a damn. Uh, but if you start to create artificially conscious intelligent agents, uh, then you have created a slave in, in the in the full sense of the word. You know, you're exploiting a sentient being uh, for your interest self-interest but not it's not for the interests of the of the machine and um, so uh, th those kinds of things do can you switch it off i mean you know you're killing it in, in effect the it's the equivalent of killing it um, is it okay to do experiments on uh, on uh, conscious robots uh, where you cause them ex exquisite uh, extreme uh, unpleasure pain uh, the equivalent of, of pain uh, you know, why would that be okay uh, when it's not okay to do that in animal research? So all of these things, um, I think we need to, and uh, I say again, because it's so alarming, I, I want to end where I began this part of our conversation. Please remember that if it can be done, it will be done. You know, it's going to happen. It's the cat is out of the bag. The basic understanding of the causal mechanisms of feeling, uh, I think, is is out there, and uh, so somebody's going to do it. Uh, therefore, we are obliged uh, to take charge of this research program so that there is at least the possibility of it being properly regulated. And um, I think it's it's the equivalent sort of thing to the problem that we faced with atomic energy. It's, mm -hmm. it's an equivalent sort of uh, risk, and it needs to be managed with equivalent seriousness um, and urgency. Yeah, Mark, well, um, I think that's actually a great place to bring it to a close. Um, I could talk to you for hours on this topic. Um, I have questions going through my head. Um, people will definitely want to, to follow up more, read your stuff. Um, but maybe we, we will close it there. Um, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Matt. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Paradigm Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider sharing it with friends and family and leaving a five-star review on your favorite podcast player. This goes a long way towards boosting our visibility and helping us attract even more fantastic guests. 
You can also head on over to our website where you'll be able to submit questions for our guests, get access to special Ask Me Anything episodes and some other nice perks. The Paradigm Podcast is free, but donations are very much welcome. For more, check out the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.